I want to thank the mixed ensemble for singing for us this morning, leading us in worship. I also want to have a voice like Rob Schatzneider's someday. I'm not alone in that, am I, men? That voice gets down so low it makes the windows start to go in and out. Let me begin this morning by asking you a question. A question for you to think about. Here's my question for you. Is humanity improving or regressing? Is humanity improving or regressing? It's kind of like who's buried in Grant's tomb, right? I mean, at one level, humanity is, is certainly growing technologically. I saw on TV yesterday this new iPhone. It's the most amazing thing. It's so complicated I could never possibly own one, but it is the <laughs> coolest thing. Take videos, press the button, they go to YouTube. What more could a guy want? <laughs> I'd probably drop it and break it my first day. So technologically, we're certainly improving, growing in that way. But just in terms of humanity as a whole, I don't think there's really much question that it's heading down. We are on a decline. Do you know that the 20th century is by far the bloodiest century in human history? More deaths by violent means in this century, one just passed. According to one internet source I was looking at, 31 million soldiers were killed in World War I and II combined. That's all combatants. 31 million taken out of one generation. That doesn't add to it the innumerable regional conflicts that have occurred subsequent to World War II. And we're just talking about soldiers. Those are people who put on uniforms, pick up rifles, go into battle with some expectation they're going to get shot at and killed. Do you know that by far more people have been killed in the 20th century by their own governments than all the soldiers killed in all the wars of the 20th century combined. The most efficient, the most vicious, the most brutal slayer of human life in the last hundred years has been government slaughtering their own citizens. Be it the communist purges of China and the Soviet Union to the Armenian genocide of 1915 in Turkey to the modern slaughterings that go on throughout this world. No more brutal or efficient killer has ever existed than human government. 
But in the providence of God and by his blessing, the governments of this world remain separated and suspicious of each other. And beloved, that is a very good thing. It is a very good thing. Certain level of nationalism is, in the providence of God, a means to hold back the tide of butchery. It prevents the governments of the world from uniting together into one world government which has the potential of annihilating mankind. The blessed condition that we presently enjoy will not last forever. The Bible is very, very clear. It tells us that someday the nations of the world will be united under one ruler, one sovereign, one boss, one authority figure, one ruler is so wicked and so ruthless in his ambitions that he will bring humanity to the brink of extinction. Who is this one world ruler? And what is his name? He is commonly referred to as the Antichrist. The Antichrist. It comes from two Greek words combined. Anti, against, or in place of. Christos, Christ. It's a descriptive title of this man. He is a man who is so completely opposed to the Lord Jesus Christ that he seeks to usurp his, divine, his place as divine king and world ruler. He is against Christ. He wants to take the place of Christ. He wants to rule the world. And according to 1 John... According to 1 John, the spirit of this man is already present in this world. Beloved, that means we are in the last days. We are in the last days. Open your Bibles to Luke chapter 21. Luke chapter 21, page 1051. Luke chapter 21 and verse 20. According to the scriptures, the rapture of the church, and we have spoken about this for five weeks, I believe it was. According to the scriptures, after the rapture of the church, the next event on the prophetic calendar is the rise of Antichrist. And so what I want to do with you beginning this morning, and this morning is going to be primarily background, laying a foundation, is I want to look with you what the Scriptures have to say about this coming world ruler. Luke chapter 21 and in verse 20, Jesus says, and this is Luke's version of what is known as the Olivet Discourse, that is, a message that Jesus spoke in private to his disciples in the last week of his life, 
After he had left the temple with the confrontations of the leaders of Israel, he walked out of their temple. He was coming back up the Mount of Olives. They had rejected him officially. I believe this is given on Tuesday in the afternoon. And they will not see him again until they are willing to say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But they will not say that. Instead, they will say, We have no king but Caesar. They will call for his crucifixion. But as they're leaving the Temple Mount area, his disciples look back over their shoulders. They see the beautiful temple that has been built by Herod. It is an architectural masterpiece that sits like a jewel to be looked at. And they point to it and say, look at this marvelous temple. And Jesus begins to speak to them about the coming events. Here in verse 20 of Luke chapter 21, he says, But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then recognize that her desolation is at hand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains, and let those who are in the midst of the city depart. And let not those who are in the country enter the city, because these are days of vengeance, in order that all things which are written may be fulfilled. Woe to those who are with child and to those who nurse babes in those days. For there will be great distress upon the land and wrath to this people. And they will fall by the edge of the sword and will be led captive into all the nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles be fulfilled. He is referring here to the Roman siege of the city of Jerusalem by which that city eventually fell in A.D. 70 and was completely destroyed, that temple entirely leveled. The nation scattered throughout the world, only to begin to return to their ancient homeland in the middle of the last century. But there is an interesting Expression here, the end of verse 24, the times of the Gentiles. Do you see that? The times of the Gentiles. This is the only place in Scripture that this expression is used. The times of the Gentiles. But there is much in Scripture that speak of these times. The expression here, the times of the Gentiles, refers to the political domination of Israel and her captor, or excuse me, and her capital by Gentile world powers. Remember, he's talking about Jerusalem being trod down. Jerusalem is the capital of the nation. If the capital is dominated by Gentile powers, then obviously the nation itself is in subjection under them. Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles, verse 24, until the times of the Gentiles be fulfilled. Political domination of the nation of Israel and her capital by Gentile world powers. When did it begin? When did this time begin? Not here, not here with the Roman conquest, 
The Roman conquest was merely an extension of those times. To find when it began, I'm going to have to turn you back into the Old Testament. All the way back to the book of 2 Kings, chapter 24. 2 Kings chapter 24, if you're using a pew Bible, page 412. Back to 2 Kings chapter 24 and beginning in verse 8. Let me read for you. I'll read through verse 14 and then come back and make a comment. 2 Kings chapter 24, beginning in verse 8. Jehoiachin was 18 years old when he became king, and he reigned three months in Jerusalem. And his mother's name was Nahushta, the daughter of Elnathan of Jerusalem. And he did evil in the sight of the Lord according to all that his father had done. At that time... The servants of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, went up to Jerusalem, and the city came under siege. And Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, came to the city while his servants were besieging it. And Jehoiachin, the king of Judah, went out to the king of Babylon, he and his mother and his servants and his captains and his officials. So the king of Babylon took him captive in the eighth year of his reign. And he carried out from there all the treasures of the house of the Lord and the treasures of the king's house. And he cut in pieces all the vessels of gold which Solomon, king of Israel, had made in the temple of the Lord, just as the Lord had said. Then he led away into exile all Jerusalem and all the captains and all the mighty men of valor, 10,000 captives and all the craftsmen and the smiths. None remained except the poorest people of the land. The date for this event is 597 B.C. 597 B.C. Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, besieging the city of Jerusalem, takes possession of the city, loots the temple of its treasures, and takes 10,000 captives, including the king of Israel, or Judah, rather, Back to Babylon, Daniel, or excuse me, Ezekiel was taken in this captivity. Daniel having been taken a little bit earlier in 605. Now the verse I want you to see, and then I want you to draw a little line in your Bible so that you'll remember this, is the last sentence of verse 12. So the king of Babylon took him captive in the eighth year of his reign. Notice in verse 8, he was 18 years old when he became king, and he reigned how many months in Jerusalem? Three. Whose reign is being talked about here? The answer to that question is that this is in the eighth year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar. This is the first time in the history of Israel that a historical event is dated by a non-Israelite king. Israel's history now becomes dated by Gentile rulers. 
no longer by her own kings. She is now under Gentile dominion. She has entered the times of the Gentiles. Gentile powers now rule over this people, this nation. In 586, the puppet king that Nebuchadnezzar had installed will rebel. Nebuchadnezzar will come back. He will completely destroy the city and slaughter many in the process. But she is under Babylon's boot now. Israel remains under Gentile powers, beloved, even today. Even today. Should Western Gentile powers withdraw their support for the nation of Israel, how long do you think it would take before she was pushed into the sea? Her own capital, Jerusalem, remains a divided city. Her most holy place is occupied by a Gentile temple. She is still in the times of the Gentiles. Her history is still, to a very large degree, dependent on the good pleasure of the Gentile nations. The times of the Gentiles are today. And they will continue and ultimately culminate in the revelation of the greatest and most wicked of all Gentile rulers the world has ever known, Antichrist, whose brutal reign will be terminated by the return of Israel's king the Lord Jesus Christ, when he returns, he will shatter Antichrist and establish his own kingdom. And the times of the Gentiles will end. The book of Daniel, the book of Daniel provides the most complete prophetic panorama of these past and future events that make up the times of the Gentiles that can be found anywhere in the Word of God. So I want to turn you to your right to the book of Daniel. Turn to Daniel chapter 7. Page 891. Daniel chapter 7. The prophet Daniel was taken captive by the Babylonians, as I said earlier, in 605 B.C., a result of the first of three sieges of that city, 605, 597, 586, the final one resulting in the destruction of the city. 
By this time, 605 B.C., when Daniel is taken, in the history of the nation of Israel, there had been a civil war two centuries earlier. Three centuries earlier. The result of that civil war was that there were ten... That's five. That would be ten. Ten of the twelve tribes united under one kingdom in the north called Israel. Two kingdoms, that's two. Two kingdoms in the south united under one tribe called Judah. These two kingdoms, this civil war continued on and off, hot and cold, for two centuries. Until eventually, because of the wicked unbelief of the northern tribes, God brought in a promised chastisement at the hand of the Assyrian Empire in 722 B.C., wiping out and carrying off into captivity those ten tribes. The southern kingdom was unwilling to learn from their wicked sister, and so they persisted in their idolatry as well until eventually God judged them in the destruction of their temple and city of Jerusalem in the year 586. Daniel was taken in that original siege in 605 as a 15-year-old boy, taken away. He was taken to Babylon, and there in Babylon, he demonstrated himself to be a faithful follower of Yahweh and also an individual possessed of a special and unique ability to interpret dreams and visions. Because of this God-given Ability and his faithful service to the God of Israel, he remained within the kingdom of Babylon, both a follower of Yahweh and a man who rose to great political prominence in that kingdom. For 70 years, he acted as an advisor to the kings. He had unhindered access to the pinnacles of power of the Babylonian Empire and the subsequent Medo-Persian Empire to follow. This man, Daniel. During his 70 years, God granted to him a series of visions, dreams, and prophecies, some of which are recorded for us in a book that bears his name, They span the time from his captivity until the return of Jesus Christ. Now, that's a long time. These prophetic visions outline God's panoramic plan for the world. And they do so in some incredible and intricate ways detail. 
God, through Daniel, recorded for us, gave us, as it were, snapshots along the way of the history of the world, some of which has yet to unfold. Beginning in chapter 2 of the book, the visions begin, and they communicate from that point forward essentially one message. Oh, we'll get to chapter 2. Dory. I just have you in 7 because you need to be someplace. And I want you to know how much I've struggled with figuring out how to preach the book of Daniel without preaching the book of Daniel. But anyway, you have to understand this. Beginning in chapter 2, there is essentially one message communicated throughout the rest of the book. That message is communicated in a series of visions that occur historically over a period of time. Each vision goes back to the original vision that begins in chapter 2 and expands upon, adds detail to, intensifies the original vision. It could be likened to going to the optometrist where you sit in the chair and you're looking at that fuzzy thing on the wall that is supposed to be a letter E. For me, it's pretty big, so they say. And then, one by one, the optometrist begins to click down those levers and the lenses in front of your eyes until you have a lens that sticks out this far. (laughs) Right? Each time he clicks one down, not that, is this better or is that better? I think they just do that to mess with you. Okay? And I'm positive I give him conflicting answers. Right? All you with glasses? Yes? Yes. I'm talking about the ones that he flicks down and he says, how's that? And then he flicks another one. Is that better? Another one and another one and another one. What happens is the image becomes sharper and sharper and sharper into focus until finally he goes, presto, you need a six-inch thick glass. (laughs) Thank you. That's what Daniel's prophecies do. Each one intensifies. Each one clarifies. Each one focuses on this message. Until by the end of the book of Daniel, we have some incredible detail. By the way, this is the reason why unbelieving liberal scholarship can't stand the book of Daniel. They absolutely abhor this book and do everything in their power to try to convince people that it was not written by whom it was written and when it was written. Because they say it is impossible for any human to know with the level of detail that Daniel knew the events that were going to occur centuries after he would live and die. Not possible. And if Daniel were about a mere man, relying only on the wisdom of a man, they would be absolutely correct. Daniel was a prophet of God. And God knows exactly What is going to happen? Listen to me. Because it is all unfolding according to his sovereign plan. And if you don't believe that's true, your life is turmoil.
a proper understanding of the book of Daniel and its prophecies is absolutely essential to understand the book of Revelation. You cannot understand the book of Revelation until you have grappled with Daniel's prophecies rightly interpreted. So this morning, that's the introduction to the introduction. (laughs) This morning, we're going to embark on something we cannot complete, which is we're going to be introduced to two Old Testament prophecies that are absolutely critical for our understanding of the Antichrist so that we can begin to remove some of the confusion that surrounds this wicked and vicious individual. Beloved, this man is the concentration of human wickedness in one individual. Daniel 7. Daniel's prophetic panorama. Follow along as I read. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions in his mind as he lay on his bed. Then he wrote the dream down and related the following summary of it. Daniel said, I was looking in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. And four great beasts were coming up from the sea, different from one another. The first was like a lion and had the wings of an eagle. I kept looking until its wings were plucked, and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man. A human mind also was given to it. And behold, another beast, a second one, resembling a bear. And it was raised up on one side, and three ribs were in its mouth between its teeth. And thus they said to it, Arise, devour much meat. After this I kept looking. And behold, another one, like a leopard, which had on its back four wings of a bird. The beast also had four heads, and dominion was given to it. After this, I kept looking in the night, visions, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful, terrifying, and extremely strong. And it had large iron teeth. It devoured and crushed and trampled down the remainder with its feet. And it was different from all the beasts that were before it. And it had ten horns. While I was contemplating the horns, behold, another horn, a little one came up among them. And three of the first horns were pulled out by the roots before it. And behold, this horn possessed eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth uttering great boasts. I kept looking until thrones were set up. And the Ancient of Days took his seat. His vestiture was like white snow and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was ablaze with flames. Its wheels were a burning fire. A river of fire was flowing and coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands were attending him, and myriads upon myriads were standing before him. The court sat, and the books were opened. Then I kept looking, because of the sound of the boastful words which the horn was speaking. I kept looking until the beast was slain, and its body was destroyed and given to the burning fire. 
As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but an extension of life was granted to them for an appointed period of time. I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. He came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom, that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. As for me, Daniel, my spirit was distressed within me, and the visions in my mind kept alarming me. I approached one of those who were standing by and began asking him the exact meaning of all this. So he told me and made known to me the interpretation of these things. These great beasts, which are four in number, are four kings who will arise from the earth. But the saints of the highest one will receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever for all ages to come. Then I desired to know the exact meaning of the fourth beast, which was different from all the others, exceedingly dreadful with its teeth of iron and its claws of bronze, which had devoured, crushed, and trampled down the remainder with its feet. And the meaning of the ten horns that were on its head, and the other horn which came up, and before which three of them fell, namely that horn which had eyes and a mouth uttering great boasts, and which was larger in appearance than its associates. I kept looking. And that horn was waging war with the saints and overpowering them until the Ancient of Days came. And judgment was passed in favor of the saints of the Highest One. And the time arrived when the saints took possession of the kingdom. Thus he said, The fourth beast will be a fourth kingdom on the earth, which will be different from all the other kingdoms. And it will devour the whole earth and tread it down and crush it. As for the ten horns, out of this kingdom ten kings will arise, and another will arise after them, and he will be different from the previous ones and will subdue three kings. And he will speak out against the Most High and wear down the saints of the Highest One, and he will intend to make alterations in times and in law, and they will be given into his hand for a time, times, and a half a time. But the court will sit for judgment, and his dominion will be taken away, annihilated and destroyed forever. Then the sovereignty, the dominion, and the greatness of all the kingdoms under the whole heaven will be given to the people of the saints of the highest one. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom, and all the dominions will serve and obey him. At this point, the revelation ended. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts were greatly alarming me, and my face grew pale. But I kept the matter to myself. It's an amazing, amazing vision. This vision was given to him, verse 1. It says, in the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon. The year was 553 B.C. 553 B.C. Daniel was about 68 years old at this time. This is the very end of his life. This is about nine years after Nebuchadnezzar had died. According to verse 1, what we have here in chapter 7 is a summary of the dream. Do you see it? We do not have the complete dream with all its details. He has recorded for us a summary. Summary. 
In this dream, Daniel sees four frightening beasts. Four frightening beasts. In verses 1 through 14, he outlines that for us. Let's take a look at these beasts. Notice first, the context here, verse 2, it says, Behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. Biblically speaking, the great sea refers to the Mediterranean. You can do that work on your own. Check that out. But that expression, the great sea, is a reference to the Mediterranean Sea. This sea is being churned up, it says, by four winds, verse 2. Four winds. Out of this sea arise four great beasts, according to verse 3. They're coming up from the sea, these great beasts. According to verse 17, these great beasts are said to be four kings that arise from the earth. So it says they come up out of the sea. It also says they arise from the earth. And according to verse 23, they are called kingdoms. Kingdoms. So they are beasts. They are kings. They are kingdoms. They arise from the Mediterranean Sea. They arise from the earth. They come about as the product or the result of this great wind. So what in the world is going on? There is some difference of opinion here, to be sure, but I, I believe this is well within the bounds that the reference to the four winds is a reference to divine providence. Divine providence. It is the providence of God that is churning up the sea. The Mediterranean Sea. The idea here is that these beasts are arising from within the Mediterranean region. It's, they arise from the earth. They arise from the sea. Well, how can that be? The answer is that it's this area of the world. That's what we're talking about. They arise from that area of the world around the Great Sea, the Mediterranean Sea. They are brought up one by one by the providence of God. I'm very comfortable, by the way, in that interpretation because back in Chapter 2, verse 21, Daniel says, God is the one who changes the times and epochs. He removes kings and establishes kings. It is God that raises up kingdoms. It is God who sets them down again. Interestingly, 650 years later, the Apostle John in Revelation chapter 13, verses 1 and 2, records a similar vision. He says, I quote, I saw a beast coming up out of the sea, having ten horns and seven heads. And on his horns were ten diadems or crowns, and on his heads were blasphemous names. And the beast which I saw was like a leopard, and his feet were like those of a bear, and his mouth like the mouth of a lion. And the dragon gave him his power and his throne and great authority. I will not take the time this morning to prove this to you, but that is a reference to the Antichrist. The Antichrist. So who are these beasts? 
back to Daniel 7. Who are these beasts that he sees? Before we answer that question, we need to go backwards to chapter 2 and preach the whole book of Daniel. No, just to make some observations. Daniel chapter 2. By the way, how many of you have ever studied the book of Daniel? Why don't you come up here and preach this? Many of you have not. Many of you have not. So this will be good. Those that have, this will reinforce what you've studied. We need to go back to chapter 2. We need to go back 50 years in time in doing this. Chapter 2 and to verse 31. Now, you remember the context here. This is where Nebuchadnezzar has a dream in the night. He wants the dream to be interpreted. He wants his wise men to interpret it. But being a wise man himself, he says to them, I want you to tell me what the dream means, but first you've got to tell me what the dream is. If you can't tell me what the dream is, why should I believe you can tell me what it means? And by the way, if you cannot do this, a piece of rubble will, or timber will be torn out of your house and you will be impaled on it. So, who's up for it? The wise men don't know the dream, don't know the interpretation. They're going to be all rounded up and killed. You know the story. Daniel comes forward, says, O king, I can tell you what the dream is, and I can tell you what it means. Not because it's within me, but the God whom I serve has given me this. Verse 31. You, O king, were looking, and behold, there was a single great statue. That statue, which was large and of extraordinary splendor, was standing in front of you, and its appearance was awesome. The head of the statue was made of fine gold, its breast and its arms of silver, its belly and its thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. You continued looking until a stone was cut out without hands, and it struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and crushed them. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were crushed all at the same time and became like chaff from the summer threshing floors, and the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them was found. But the stone that struck the statue became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. This was the dream. Now we shall tell its interpretation before the king. You, O king, are the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, the strength, and the glory. And wherever the sons of men dwell, or the beasts of the field, or the birds of the sky, he has given them into your hand and has caused you to rule over them all. You are the head of gold." And after you there will arise another kingdom inferior to you, then a third kingdom of bronze which will rule over all the earth. And then there will be a fourth kingdom as strong as iron, inasmuch as iron crushes and shatters all things. So like iron that breaks in pieces, it will crush and break all these in pieces. And in that you saw the feet and the toes, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, it will be a divided kingdom. But it will have in it the toughness of iron." Inasmuch as you saw the iron mixed with common clay. And as the toes of the feet were partly of iron and partly of pottery, so some of the kingdom will be strong and some of it will be brittle. And in that you saw the iron mixed with common clay, they will combine with one another in the seed of men, but they will not adhere to one another, even as iron does not combine with pottery. In the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed, and that kingdom will not be left for another people. It will crush and put an end to all these kingdoms, but it will itself endure forever. Inasmuch 
As you saw that a stone was cut out of the mountain without hands and that it crushed the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, the great God has made known to the king what will take place in the future. So the dream is true and its interpretation is trustworthy. Nebuchadnezzar saw a statue. The statue was comprised of four different metals, gold, silver, bronze, and iron in descending order. This statue is entirely crushed by a stone cut out without hands, which grows to become a mountain and fills the whole earth. That's the dream. The stone is revealed to be a kingdom, a fifth kingdom, the kingdom of God. The first metal in the statue, gold, we are told, is Nebuchadnezzar. You are the head, O king. We know the last kingdom for sure. We know the first kingdom for sure. The statue symbolizes four world empires. Four world empires. Each of these empires is symbolized by a metal. Each empire arises out of the prior empire. All previous three empires, according to the dream, are trampled and consumed by the fourth iron empire, which itself is crushed by the stone. And by being crushed, it in effect crushes all of them because they are all combined in this iron Babylon, the first empire. The empire of Babylon, 626 to 539 B.C., is followed by the Medo-Persian Empire. The Medo-Persian Empire conquered Babylon in 539. The Medo-Persian Empire lasted until 533. In 533 arose another king by the name of Alexander. Do you remember him? He had a last name that was interesting. It was called the Great. Alexander the Great. He forged a world empire that conquered and consumed, as it were, the Medo-Persian Empire, the Grecian Empire, the Greek Empire, lasted from 333 to 63 B.C., In 63 B.C., the Roman Empire formally conquered the Greek Empire, and the Roman Empire lasted until 476 A.D. That's when the last of the Western Roman emperors was deposed. As the dream says, and history confirms, each empire was absorbed into the previous empire, with the exception of the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire was never conquered. The Roman Empire collapsed internally and was absorbed into the nations of modern Europe. Now, turn back to Daniel chapter 7. Four beasts... Four kings, four kingdoms. Verse 4, the first was like a lion and had the wings 
of an eagle. A lion with the wings of an eagle. According to Jeremiah chapter 4, verses 6 and 7, Babylon is called a lion. The prophet refers to her as the lion. The national symbol of ancient Babylon was a winged lion. In Germany, there is a replica of the Ishtar Gates of ancient Babylon on in the pottery, the ceramic of the Ishtar Gates, you can see the winged lion. It's a sign and symbol of Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon, the winged lion. This winged lion is Babylon. It is the Babylonian Empire. It is Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonian king. He is the first beast. I don't have time to unpack all this, but his wings are plucked. He's lifted from the ground. He's made to stand on two feet like a man. A human mind is also given to him. This could quite possibly be a reference to the events of Daniel chapter 4, where Nebuchadnezzar, you remember, is made to be like a wild beast, and then his sanity is returned to him, and he begins to praise and bless God Almighty. That could be a reference to such things. I'll let you play with that one. The first beast is Babylon. The second beast, verse 5, resembled a bear, raised up on one side, three ribs in its mouth. The Medo-Persian Empire, the one that came immediately following the Babylonian Empire and conquered it, was known for its size and its fierceness. The fact that this bear is raised up on one side may well be a reference to the fact that it was not an equal partnership between the Medes and the Persians. And although the Medes began as the dominant force in this united empire, it was ultimately the Persians who became the greater portion of this combined empire. It began as the Medes, but it eventually became the Persian Empire, which, by the way, Persia is modern-day Iran. Babylon is modern-day Iraq, just so you can have some context. The three ribs in its mouth are interesting. Many, many commentators write, and I think this is as good of interpretation as any, that the three ribs in the mouth of the bear are references to the three kingdoms that the Medo-Persian Empire consumed in its ascent to power, Babylon, Lydia, and Egypt. The Medo-Persian Empire was an amazing empire in terms of its geographical spread. It stretched all the way from the Indus River in the east, that's in India, to the Aegean Sea in the west, just outside of Greece, to Egypt in the south. That's a big territory to control. This is the empire of Xerxes. This is the empire of the 300 Spartans. This is the empire of Esther, the Medo-Persian empire, the bear. The third beast, verse 6, was like a leopard. It had on its back four wings of a bird. The beast also had four heads, and dominion was given to it. Leopards are noted for speed, speed and fierceness. 
This leopard empire equates to the bronze portion of the statue in Daniel's earlier vision. The silver portion equates to the bear. A little bit earlier, the gold is the lion. Symbolizes the empire of Greece that rose to prominence under Alexander. Alexander forged the Greek empire. And in 334 B.C., he invaded Asia Minor, Turkey, the westernmost border of the Medo-Persian Empire. And within 10 years, he had entirely conquered that empire. With an army of relative to the size of the Persian Empire, a very small and fast and aggressive fighting force. Military tacticians to this very day study his methods of combat. Probably one of the most brilliant generals the world has ever produced. In ten short years, he conquered it all the way to the borders of India. Victorious and bored, he died in 323 B.C. at the age of 33 years old. After his death, his kingdom was carved up after a 22-year struggle into four parts by his four main generals. Look again. The beast had how many heads? Four. His empire was carved up by four main generals, two of whom continue to be important in the biblical narrative and continue to appear in the prophecies of Daniel. One of them controlled Egypt. The other controlled essentially the Middle East, what we would call the Middle East. Israel, Syria, Jordan, that area. They come up again and again as Daniel unfolds. Fourth beast. The fourth beast is unlike any of the others. The first three were animals that Daniel could have seen at the zoo in Babylon. I mean, minus the wings, of course. The lion, the bear, the leopard. This fourth beast defies description. And so it is unlike any beast that Daniel has ever seen or that has ever lived. It's a monster. This monster is Rome. Rome. Rome is known historically for its ruthlessness and its destructive nature. Rome destroyed civilizations. Out of this fourth beast come ten horns, we're told, or kings. The horns are kings, verse 24 tells us. And they equate to the ten toes of the statue back in chapter 2. The legs of iron is Rome. Rome is known as the Iron Empire, iron implements of war. According to Daniel chapter 7 and verse 8, he is 
contemplating these horns, thinking about what it is he's seeing, and another horn, a little horn, do you see that? A little horn comes up among them and violently overthrows three of the ten. There's an eleventh horn that comes up. And this horn, as it says, pulls out three of them by the roots. It overthrows three of these kings, right? The horns are kings, we're told. This little horn is, unlike the others, it possesses the eyes of a man and a mouth uttering great boasts. Human eyes speak of intelligence. Certainly, mouths uttering great boasts speak of arrogance. This is a very arrogant, very intelligent, very crafty individual, the little horn. And at that moment, verse 9, at that moment, while Daniel was contemplating these things, the vision shifts, and in verses 9 through 14, and I'm not going to take the time either today nor next time to go through this portion of the vision, but I will just tell you this. He is taken into the throne room of God. He is taken into the very throne room of God, and there he witnesses the judgment and destruction of the little horn and the establishment of Messiah's kingdom. One like the Son of Man, verse 13, was coming. What was Jesus' most favorite title for himself? The Son of Man. It comes from this verse. One like unto the Son of Man. This, by the way, is just another vision of the stone cut without hands that crushes the statue and becomes a mountain that fills the whole earth. Here it is now a kingdom, a dominion, verse 14, an everlasting dominion, one under which every people, nation, and men might serve him, a mountain that fills the whole earth, a kingdom that will not pass away. This is Messiah's kingdom that brings about the destruction of the little horn. That's the point. It brings about the destruction of the little horn. You hang with me for a couple more minutes? You hang with me for a couple more. We'll quickly finish chapter 7, and chapter 8 will just have to be for next time. All right, hang with me quickly here. Or don't hang with me quickly. I'll go quickly. quickly. You just hang. <laughs> Verse 15, Daniel's distressed. Do you see it? He's alarmed in his mind. What he's seen is beyond anything that he can imagine that the terrifying nature of this fourth beast, the presumption and arrogance of the little horn that arises from this fourth beast that would dare to take on God Almighty is alarming, distressing for him. So he turns and he asks, verse 16, someone standing there, presumably an angel, And he begins questioning him, and his questioning is confined to this fourth beast. And in particular, the little horn that arises from among the fourth beast, verses 19 and 20. I want to know the meaning of the ten horns, verse 20, and the little horn, the other horn, before which three of them fell. 
You know, that horn, the one with the eyes and the mouth that utters great boasts, it's larger in appearance than his associates. I want to know what's going on with that. Boy, I'm sure glad he was curious. I want to know what's going on with that too. So beginning in verse 23, the angel informs Daniel of the interpretation of this fourth beast. Notice in verse 23, he says that this fourth kingdom will devour and crush the whole earth. This kingdom will be unlike any of the others. Its reach, its, its, its extent will go across the whole earth. Thus it will require a fifth kingdom to crush it, a kingdom which itself will go across the whole earth. We've moved out of the realm, as it were, now of just the Mediterranean part of the world. We're now talking about the whole earth. This kingdom is unlike any other. It's a worldwide kingdom characterized by devouring and crushing, arrogance and presumption, craftiness and intelligence. Beyond that, we can note that the ten horns, the ten kings, they are a confederacy of nations. And they arise at the end of the age because that which destroys the fourth kingdom is what? Answer, Messiah's kingdom. It is the coming kingdom. It is Messiah's kingdom which crushes this fourth kingdom, this beast. That takes us to the end of the age. Beyond that, we know that the ten horns appear not sequentially but simultaneously. How do I know that? Because that's the only way that three of them can fall down before the, 11, the little horn. If they occur sequentially, they can't all fall down before him. If they occur simultaneously, they can and indeed do. So there are ten horns, ten kingdoms, ten kings. An eleventh arises. Three are uprooted and fall down before him and this little horn then dominates the entire ten. The Roman Empire. He forges them after subduing these, the three, into a ten-nation federation that begins to persecute the nation of Israel. Verse 25 this little horn, in control of the other ten, speaks out against the Most High, and he seeks to wear down the saints of the highest one. The saints. Remember, Daniel is writing to who? Jewish people. This is a Jewish context. Okay? Saints here. He's talking about his own people. This ten-nation federation, these ten horns over which the little horn has now assumed authority, are going to persecute the nation of Israel. And they're going to persecute the nation of Israel sometime at the end of the age because that persecution is going to be brought to an end by the coming of Messiah's kingdom. That's what will bring it to an end. You remember the throne room vision a little bit earlier, right? Beyond that, it says the persecution will last for a time, times, and half a time. Verse 25. I will not attempt at this moment to 
prove this to you. You'll have to take my word for it for now. But a time, times, and a half a time is three and a half years. Three and a half years. For a three and a half year period, the little horn in control of this federation of ten kings will harass the nation of Israel and will seek, it says, verse 25, to make alteration in times and in law. That is, in the worship of the nation of Israel. Times, days, feast days, law, Torah, Mosaic law. The idea is that the nation of Israel is going to be under persecution for three and a half years by this little horn. 